Hey, before we get started today, I want to tell you about another one of our ministry partners and something that's going on. You may have heard about this week. If you watch the news, you know that there have been um, some pretty serious political protests in Haiti. Um, there's been some violence around uh, Port-au-Prince, the, the capital city, and uh, a lot of the economic activity in the country is ground to a halt. And uh, our ministry partner, Nehemiah Vision Ministries, has been impacted by this, uh, in the, by, by the protests in Haiti. Genesis, in fact, was supposed to have a team down there right now, and uh, it was postponed. That trip was postponed at the advice of the NVM staff. And so we want to pray for peace to overcome the country of Haiti. Uh, we want to pray for protection for um, the people of Haiti and, and specifically for NVM and their leaders as they navigate the ramifications that these protests are having. I mean, a lot of, like I said, a lot of the economic activity has stopped. So things like diesel fuel and uh, food are not moving freely around the country. And so I want to pray for that community and for that organization, NVM, and for their families. In fact, let's just take a moment here in the service to pray right now. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we know you are in control of all things, and we know that um, it's not your will, not your desire for these protests to be uh, causing people to go hungry and to live without the basic needs of life. So I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring peace on the country of Haiti. I pray for Nehemiah Vision Ministries, for our fantastic partners down there, that you would give them wisdom and discernment for how to deal with these protests. I pray for safety for the leaders and for the staff down there and uh, for all the children that are involved in those programs and the people in the village of Chambrun. And Lord, I pray for a quick end to these protests so that their work can continue and we can continue to build the community center uh, that, that they're building down there, that they can reach more people uh, in the village of Chambrun and throughout the country of Haiti. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for uh, doing that with me. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these on the floor around you. This is our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take this one home with you. It's page 758 in this Bible. 758 is Acts chapter 1. You know, when I was a kid, I loved to play basketball. But the problem was I wasn't very good. And so by the time I was in seventh grade, I was cut from the team, couldn't even make the B team. And so instead, I started my own basketball games. Now, that's not that unusual, right? You know, all know kids that would play in pickup games. They didn't make the school team. But I'm not talking about pickup games. I'm talking about a basketball game with just me. My, my neighbor had a goal. And so I would um, act out the entire game. I would pass the ball to myself. I would get my own rebound. I would do the announcing of who the players were that were doing the game. And when that got boring, I started to play defense on myself. And this was much better than the NBA All-Star game because there was actually defense being played. And <laughs> I would block my own shots. I would steal my own passes. I would uh, do all that stuff. And if you were to drive by the basketball goal, you might think, oh, how sad. That poor little kid doesn't have anybody to play with. Isn't it, isn't it weird and a little bit sad to see a 13-year-old like playing basketball by himself, going up and like <laughs> blocking his own shots, sticking the ball in his face? Because really, we're not supposed to play basketball alone, right? It's one of those things that you're not supposed to do. Like there are several things you're not supposed to do alone, and playing basketball is just one of those things. And like playing board games is another one of those things. Uh, can you imagine playing yourself in Battleship and B3? Oh, man, you got me again. How did you know? You know, it's like... There are certain things you're not supposed to do alone. Folding a fitted sheet, something you're not supposed to do alone, right? There are things that we're not supposed to do alone. And one of those things is our faith. 
Like our faith, we were never meant for our faith in God to be only an individual pursuit. I mean, sure, true, we have to make the decision individually to submit to Christ. Like if your uh, mom was a Christian or your grandfather was a Christian, it doesn't save you. You've got to make that decision. We've got to accept his forgiveness individually. But what the book of Acts shows us is that some of what God wants to do in us is in community. It's in the community of the church. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks studying the fifth book of the New Testament, a book that's officially called the Acts of the Apostles. We usually shorten it to the book of Acts. The author of Acts is a man named Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote another book of the Bible. Can anybody guess what it is? Luke, right, the Gospel of Luke. You guys know your Bible so well. I'm so proud. Um, Luke is a scientific mind. He was a doctor by trade uh, and by training, and he wrote both books by carefully examining the facts and interviewing eyewitnesses. So these are not books that are written two or 300 years after the death of Jesus. They were written within a, a few dozen years, within maybe a couple of dozen years, and written from the point of view of eyewitnesses, people who actually witnessed these accounts. So they're not based on hearsay, but they're carefully documented histories based on conversations of people who actually saw these events happen. And so on first glance, if you just read Luke and you read Acts, uh, the first chapter, what you see is these are both appear to be written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. Now, there are a lot of theories about who Theophilus was. Uh, some people think that Luke could have been a slave to Theophilus. Many doctors in those days were slaves, and uh, the Greeks would have owned Hebrew slaves, and uh, Luke could have been a slave working for Theophilus. Um, others believe Theophilus is a translation of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a man uh, who is mentioned in a couple of Paul's letters, who was an early uh, influencer in the church. Uh, still other people think that Theophilus, which means loved by God, it's the Greek translation of the Theophilus is loved by God, is more of a generic term, that Luke wasn't actually writing this to a person in specific, uh, a specific person, but instead that he was writing it to all of God's people. But regardless of who Theophilus was or if he even existed, the cool thing about these accounts is we have them still 2,000 years later, that we can see from eyewitness accounts the things that actually happened. And so here's what he writes in Acts 1.1. This is from Luke. He says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And when you first read this verse, it seems like a throwaway. Like this is just the introduction to Acts. But you see this phrase at the end that Jesus began to do and teach began to do and teach. The implication here is that even after Jesus was gone, after he was killed and then raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven, that he wasn't done doing and teaching. He still had things to do and teach us. In other words, this, the, the story of Jesus doesn't end when the gospels end that there's still more that he had to do. In fact, author Alfred, uh, Albert Moeller says it this way. He says, the implication is that Acts is a record of what Jesus continued to do and teach by his spirit in the church. Right? So Acts is kind of a continuation of what Jesus was doing here on earth. And uh, because of that, worship of Jesus must necessarily include the work that he did after his ascension into heaven through the church. Right? So worship of Jesus must necessarily include involvement in the church. So I get a little nervous when I hear people say things like, you know what, me and God are good, but I don't need the church. I mean, besides it's obvious bad grammar, it's not good theology, right? And so people say things like, uh, I love Jesus, but I don't really love his church. 
um, it's not really right theology. It's not what Scripture teaches. So then how did we get here? How do we get to this place where many people, many Christians, in fact, believe that you can have an abiding faith without being part of a church? And how do we get to a place where even many of us who are part of a church don't attend very often? I mean, many recent studies show that the most committed Christians attend their home church twice a month. You know, that's half the time. And while there are certainly cultural factors to, that contribute to that, I mean, there's things like growing affluence, uh, wider ability to travel, uh, more involvement and focus on sports, kids' sports and activities, and more online options available. I mean, the, the truth is you have better preaching than me right here in, on your phone. And so we have access to that. But I believe that one of the major reasons for the de-churchification, I'm going to use that word, the de-churchification of America, one of the major reasons is a widespread misunderstanding in America, and in fact, in the Western world, about what the church is supposed to be and do. And so that's why we're starting this new series today, just in an effort to look at what Scripture says about the church. And as we dive into the book of Acts, and in fact, we're going to spend five weeks, not on the entire book of Acts, don't worry, because that would be really, really fast. Um, but we're going to spend five weeks on the first eight chapters of Acts. What we're going to see is a very cool picture of the formation of this first church. Now, Pastor Francis Chan uh, last year wrote a book called Letters to the Church, and in that, he asked us to consider this question. He said, if you had no church background but only a Bible to go by, what would the church look like? In other words, what would people, when they gathered together, what would they do? Uh, what problems would the church address? What would worship look like? Uh, and so on and so forth. Well, we can find all that stuff in the book of Acts. And so one thing that may surprise you is that this, like what we're doing here, this was never meant to be the whole purpose of the church or even the main purpose of the church. Like the, the sitting in rows and looking at me, that was not supposed to be the main purpose of the church. Jesus, I don't think, ever envisioned this place where people come together, got together in rows, drank coffee for an hour, and then went back to their normal lives. Like that's not supposed to be the church. So what do you think of when you hear the word church? In a room this size, there's probably lots of different opinions shaped by lots of different backgrounds, how you grew up, what churches you've experienced. And let, I mean, because let's face it, the one thing that we're not short on in America is churches, right? I can see two, I realized today, from my house. Inside my house, I can look out my windows, I can see two different church buildings. We're blessed with churches in America. We're blessed, especially in Indiana, in the heart of the Bible Belt. Uh, we're a church with the freedom to worship, and here we're doubly blessed. We've got churches on almost every street corner. I don't know if you've ever counted how many you have to pass to get here, but for me, it's probably a dozen that I've got to drive past just to get to Genesis uh, every morning. So I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't really have a church background, but even so, I had ideas about what the church was supposed to be. Church was supposed to be uh, about rules, the people there were stuffy. They were perfect. They didn't want imperfect people there. Now I know better, right? I've, I've visited many churches in my life. I've been in big churches and small churches, uh, traditional churches and completely non-traditional churches. I've, I've attended churches with 10,000 people. And when I started, <clears throat> when my family and I started at Genesis, we had 35 people. Um, <clears throat> I've visited huge, huge cathedrals in Germany that were empty of people, and I visited underground churches in China where you need a foreign passport to attend because locals and Chinese citizens aren't allowed. There are churches all over this country, all over the state, all over this world. And many of you here today come from different churches, different backgrounds. And some of you are very new to church. 
Maybe you gave up on church a long time ago, but thanks to somebody who invited you, um, you're coming around again. This, this word church just invites all sorts of ideas and thoughts and images, and some are very positive and some are not. Some are very negative. But whatever you think about church, whatever picture comes to your mind when you think about church, my guess is that it's a different picture of that very first church in the book of Acts. It may surprise you to know that the the very first church began as a movement, not as an institution. There were no buildings. There were no sermon series or bands. There were no uh, youth groups and no bagels. Wait, I'm going to take that back. They were Jewish, so it's possible that there were bagels in the first church. But from the very beginning, the church began as a movement, and it began as a movement around one very powerful message, that Jesus is the risen Christ, the Son of the living God that he gave his life on the cross for you and me, and that because of his death and resurrection, your sins can be forgiven. That was the message. And the first church was not launched around a worship style or a particular community or even around a belief system. It was launched around an event in history, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was that one event and the testimony of these very eyewitnesses that we have in the book of Acts that, that launched the local church. And so if you're taking notes, uh, you might want to write this down. The first church was not a place, but it was a collection of people. It began as a movement. And in many places around the world, the church continues as a movement today. So if you were to look at the original Greek New Testament, you see this word that now we now translate church. In most places, it's this word. It's the word ekklesia. Now, ekklesia means assembly or congregation, or gathering. And in fact, it's sometimes translated as called out ones, people who are called out, right? Now, the implication of that is the church isn't a place, it's people. And so when Jesus launched the church uh, in Matthew 16, he launched the church as a gathering or an ecclesia. He said, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. But unfortunately, something happened throughout history, and as time went on, there was this transition from this idea of church as a movement, as a collection of people, to church as a location. What Jesus called the church and what became the church kind of of became a hierarchy of sorts, a power structure. Uh, Whereas the first church was established on this event of the death and resurrection of Jesus, over time, the church transitioned to an organization based on some entirely different and really not very important things. And in some way, the, the, the residue of that lingers today. I mean, think about it. Think about how often you make a statement like, I'm going to church today. Or maybe this morning you told your kids, we're going to church whether you like it or not. Or maybe you'll drive by down Old Marine Street, you'll go by this building and you go, hey, there's my church. I know it's ugly, but you should see it on the inside. It's really cool. You know, we, we all say things like that, right? So what happened? Well, around 300 AD, if you're up for a little history, Around 300 AD, the emperor Constantine legalized Christianity in Rome, and religion started to spread, and it very quickly became the the main religion in Rome. But it started to spread throughout the world, and when it got to German-speaking countries, the word ecclesia was translated as this German word called kirche. Kirche sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? This is the German word where we get our church. Well, Kirka wasn't, was actually the word for a building, for a church building. It was the place where people, it wasn't the gathering of people. It was the place where people gathered. And what Jesus initiated as this movement of people around a message became more and more about a location instead. It's kind of the idea that people had in the Old Testament where, where 
people believed that God lived in the temple and they would all go to the temple to worship. And so this sparked a transition from church as a movement of people to church as a place. Uh, Church became about a building and this created some really bad theology because whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And before the creation of the printing press, many of the copies of scripture weren't housed in people's hands. They were housed in the church. And so if you controlled the building, you controlled the church. If you controlled the church, you controlled the scriptures. And if you control the scriptures, you can kind of make them say whatever you want because normal people can't translate them, can't read them, can't have access to them. So if you control the scriptures, you control the people. And in a lot of places, if you control the people, you control the government too. And so in many situations, these became ugly expressions of the gospel. The church became very exclusive, very inward focused. It was all about protecting this kingdom that we've built on this building. The church developed a reputation for being unethical and immoral. And so what started on this, as this movement around the cross and resurrection of Christ in a matter of a few hundred years morphed into something that was not from God. But thankfully, along the way, different men and women showed up throughout history and sacrificed their lives to help bring the church back to the heart of God. And one of these change your world types was a guy by the name of William Tyndale. You've probably heard his story if you've been here before. We've told it before. Tyndale was born in England in 1494. He was a famous author and scholar, and he was a master of languages. He was fluent in eight different languages. And uh, people would say that if you didn't know where Tyndale was from, you would think he was from the region that spoke whatever language he was speaking at the time. He was that fluent in them. Uh, And so as a man of great faith, though, Tyndale had one great passion, and that was to bring the word of God, to translate the word of God, to bring it to the common man, to normal, ordinary people. Because he lived in this day and age where people like us didn't have access to the Bible. They were all housed in the churches. They were controlled by the priests. They were written in languages that normal people couldn't understand. And so unless you were trained in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, you didn't really have access to the scriptures. And if you have that kind of control, like I say, you can make it say whatever you want. And you can only imagine the horrible impact manipulation of scripture has has on this, right? Well, Tyndale had seen enough of this. He began translating the scriptures into the English language, and the church leaders in England weren't very happy about this. It didn't take long before Tyndale was declared an outlaw, and he was forced into hiding in Germany, where he continued his translating. Well, Tyndale also got on the bad side of King Henry VIII. Henry VIII, you may know, annulled his marriage so that he could get married to Anne Boleyn. Well, Tyndale spoke out against this marriage, said it was an unbiblical union. And so Henry VIII came after him. He was eventually betrayed by a friend and brought back to England, extradited to England, where he was tried for being a heretic. He was uh, declared an enemy of the church. He was strangled, and his body uh, burned at the stake. Although he was dead, it was too late. His work had been done, and for the first time, common people, like ordinary people, thanks to William Tyndale, had access to the Scripture and, in fact, to the Bible that they could read, a Bible that was in English. This church, this institutional church that for so long now had been defined by its location and its ability to control and manipulate the scriptures and to control people slowly began to lose power. And in fact, Tyndale's last words as he hung on the stake and was put to death were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. You know, Henry VIII had him put to death. And he said, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. How fitting then that the most translated, printed, and read book in the history of the world is the King James Version of the English Bible. You know, it was William Tyndale's desire to give the people a copy of the Bible. And so in addition to his translation of Scripture, he provided commentary 
on some of the Bible's most important passages. And one of the things that he did was he reminded people of the ecclesia, reminded people that the church is not a building, it's not an institution, it's a movement. It's a movement of people who who embrace one big, great message for the whole world, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. And this message changes everything. God never intended for the church to be defined by a location. The, The church, when the church is getting it right, is a movement. It's not a fortress to hide in. It's a force to be reckoned with. Now, why is this important? Well, it's, that's what Jesus taught us, for one thing. And the other thing is, as Andy Stanley writes, you can lock the doors of a kirka, but you can't lock the doors of an ecclesia. Right? You can't put a lock on people. So if we're going to study the book of Acts, why did I bother to tell you all this about what happened 300 years later? Well, it's going to make sense in just a minute, I promise. But when we start to read the instructions, Jesus gave the first church. It's in Acts chapter 1, so let's just go there now. Let the author Luke set up the moment for us, all right? Acts 1, 1 through 8. He says again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, remember, this is the event we talked about, the event that launched the church, the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's very important for us to remember, especially if you've got a skeptical bone in your body, that Luke wrote this. And as he wrote it, many of the eyewitnesses that saw this happen were still alive. So if there were people who refute Luke's account, there's a good chance that this book would have never made it out of the first century, right? Because people who knew better would have squashed it and not let it escape. So this is the event that he talked about. This is the event for starting the church. And then Jesus is going to go on and he's going to give the church some instructions, right? On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he said, for now, it's important to gather. Now, the apostles didn't quite understand this idea of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. Jesus had it, but I don't know that they always saw it in him. But they thought maybe Jesus was talking about some kind of earthly kingdom that was coming to them. And so they asked, they all gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. And then he gives it, all right, the big instruction he's going to give to us, maybe the founding statement of the first church. And and there's a lot in this. Okay, but look at what Jesus says is the main idea of the church. Verse eight, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, so he says, basically, we're going to break this all down. You're going to stay here for a while. You're going to gather together. You're going to be here in this place, and then you're going to be sent, right? You're going to be sent out, and and that's why we're calling this series Sent, because it's about this, this first church was not about a building or a location, We are not supposed to be about a building or a location. We're a gathering of people, a family. And we're supposed to be a family on mission. Now, you may think, I don't really have, I don't really need a church family. I've got my own family back at home, right? But scripture tells us a very different possibility. I don't want to be a downer this morning, but family is temporary. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your family. Like look to the left and to the right. 
many of these people that are here are the people you're going to be in heaven with someday. And I'm sorry if that doesn't make you happy. But the family of God is forever family. The family of the church is forever family. Church is a family. Its members are referred to in Scripture as brothers and sisters. We, we are adopted. The Bible tells us we are adopted children of God. And by the way, this is also why we think that connection groups are so important. It's hard to get to know family when you're sitting beside them in rows staring at somebody in the front of the room, right? If you're going to get to know family, you got to sit around in a circle in a living room somewhere, knee to knee, eye to eye, and look at them and talk about the troubles that you're facing and talk about how you live this out together. It's, it's why we think groups are so important. And by the way, um, just a plug, groups are starting this week. And if you want to be a part of one, there's going to be some people in the lobby after the service that would love to get you connected to your church family, your forever family. The church is a family, and it's supposed to be a family on mission, right? That we're a family of people who gather together to be built up and then sent out. And some of us are sent to Jerusalem and Judea. That means like the local area, right? Some of us are sent to areas right around us to be missionaries, to be on mission in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Some of us are sent to Samaria. Samaria is kind of the place that nobody wants to go. And some of us are sent to the ends of the earth. And sadly, I think this is what we've missed, as the church, so many of us think we need to leave the kingdom work to missionaries. Like, like instead, I'll, I'll send some money to an international missionary. I'll let them go reach the lost or spread the gospel, right? Or, or what about the work of the church? Well, that's why we pay people. That is why we pay you, Steve. That's why we pay the staff here. And, that, and because of this mindset, we miss the idea that Christians are part of the ecclesia, part of the gathering, like all of us. Look at what the Bible says is the job, my job, the job of pastors and staff, Ephesians 4 says it this way. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our job is to equip the people of God to go do the work of God in the mission field of God. And so where does that leave all of you? Well, you're the assembly. You're the missionaries. You're the family. We're all part of that family on mission. We are the ones who are a sent people. But we've gotten so interested in the West in counting people, right? Growing our attendance, growing our giving, growing how many people are in small groups or how many people are serving or how many students come out to our student event. And all that stuff is good and all of it's important, but it can't be the ultimate thing. We got to stop making counting people the ultimate measure of church success. And I have to tell you, I just have to confess up front, I'm really guilty of this. In fact, I want to admit to you that for the first two or three years I pastored here at Genesis, when we planted this campus, um, the very first thing I would do after all of you left is I would check the parking lot, make sure everybody was gone, and then I'd go to the info hub and pick up the attendance sheet and go, hmm, see how many people were here. And in a lot of ways, I gained my identity from it. I gained my value as a person, as a pastor, as a preacher, was based on how many people were here. And so if attendance was up that week, I'd kind of pat myself on the back. You did a good job. Way to go. If attendance was down, I'd start to ask these really tough questions like, what are we doing wrong? 
What am I doing wrong? Why are people not coming to church? But then I realized something. I had this revelation and it changed the way I saw the church. I realized this. I realized that a church shouldn't be defined by its seating capacity, but it should be defined by its sending capacity. Like a successful church, or maybe we should say a faithful church, isn't necessarily the one with the biggest attendance or the nicest building or the largest auditorium or the biggest online following. Instead, the faithful church is the one who works intentionally and increasingly at winning the lost, building believers, equipping kingdom workers, and sending leaders out to make disciples. Thank you. I appreciate that. Imagine this. Okay, I want you to imagine this. Uh, This week was Valentine's Day. Most of us celebrate Valentine's Day. Some of us uh, ignore it uh, for good reasons. But imagine that um, Valentine's Day, imagine you have a date. That might be an imagination for you. That's fine. Imagine you walk into a restaurant, a really nice restaurant with your date. And as you're walking in, there's this couple that's walking out. And they're like incredibly attractive couple. It's, it's uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone from La La Land, okay? It's like picture perfect. And uh, as you're walking in, they're walking out of the restaurant. They've just finished their romantic dinner. And as they're walking out, they stop on the sidewalk and you see the man get down on one knee, Ryan Gosling. He gets down on one knee and uh, you think, oh man, something big is about to happen. And you should have noticed because there are rose petals all over the sidewalk and somehow you missed that. And his friend is crouching in the bushes ready to take pictures so they can post it on Instagram when she says yes, right? And, uh, you wa- and so you stop for a minute. You decide not to go in the restaurant. I want to see how this unfolds. And so you watch this happen. And he has, gives this beautiful, eloquent speech. And he asks her if she would be uh, his forever. And she starts to cry. And not an ugly cry because that's not good for Instagram. She cries, you know, the really beautiful cry where she's just got one single solitary tear coming down each corner of her eye. And she says, yes, yes, of course I'll marry you. And she stands up and she gives him a hug around the neck and they kiss and they embrace right there on the sidewalk. And you got to witness all of it. And then he says something really peculiar. He says, all right, this is perfect. You go get ready for the wedding and invite anybody you want to be there. I'm going to go get our house ready. And when I get back, we'll get married. And you go, well, that's really weird. That's how this whole thing's going to work. She's got to get ready. She's got to go invite people and he's going to go get the house ready. And then he's going to come back. And he says, when I get back, and and she, she yells to him as he's walking away, when will you be back? And he turns around and goes, I'll be back soon. And that's all she knows. What's the bride going to do? Well, I promise you what she's not going to do is go back to her normal life and just start doing things that she was doing before she got engaged, right? What's she going to do? She's going to start thinking about, who am I going to invite to the wedding? And she's going to start getting herself ready for the wedding because that's the instruction that the groom gave her. Did you know that the church in scripture is called the bride of Christ? Did you know that in the book of Revelation, there's a wedding between the groom and his bride? Brothers and sisters, there is a wedding coming. And we don't know when, but we know it will be soon. And our instruction is to get ourselves ready for the wedding and to invite whoever we want to be there. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's the mission field. That's where the church does its best work. This here, this is just the classroom. This is the training facility. I mean, yes, it's also the family reunion. This is where we get together and encourage one another. What happens in this room here on Sunday mornings is important, 
because it's the one time a week we're all together and we can huddle together and we can study the playbook and we can encourage and pray for one another and we can heal our wounds and then we can be sent back out on mission every week. That's the purpose of the church. That's why the podcast is a really, really poor substitute for the church. Sure, you get to hear what we talked about, but you aren't here to be built up. You aren't here to encourage others. You aren't here to, to help people heal. In fact, I want to issue a challenge to you today. I want you to be here every week. I know that's a big deal. I know that we all have travel plans and we're going to be out of town. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not trying to stop that. But what I'm trying to say is if you're here in town and if you're not contagious, um, come, be here. Be a part of this gathering because what we do here is important. And it's not that we gather for the sake of gathering. It's we gather so that we can be sent. And for some of us, that's really scary because this is our safe place. This is our sanctuary. And I don't really want the messy people in my life coming in here. I don't really want to reach people who don't look like me, don't act like me, don't talk like me. I really want this to be my haven, my sanctuary, my safe place. But the church is supposed to be dangerous. There there are no walls to protect us. There are no locks on the doors to the outside. Um, So on Friday, I'm feeling a little bold today (laughs) because on Friday I preached at my grandmother's funeral she passed away last week, and she was 102 years old. She had a great life. She was a faithful servant of the Lord's. It was a real celebration of life. And tomorrow, I'm, I'm hosting another funeral for a dear woman in our church. Um, and then yesterday, I had the chance to visit with a friend of mine that I worked with many, many years ago who's now in hospice, and she's dying of brain cancer, and it could be any day, and she asked if I would perform her funeral. And so funerals uh, make me a little bolder, because it helps me realize that we are all temporary and we don't have much time here. And so if I can be bold with you for just a minute, I heard a pastor say this week, the church has become too much like a zoo. How many of you have seen the movie Madagascar? Have you seen that movie? Great movie, really funny. The concept is that these animals that are all housed in these enclosures that are made to look and feel like their natural habitat, but it's not their natural habitat but they get lulled into feeling that they're doing what they're created to do because they're being really well-fed and really well-cared for in this nice, safe place where they don't have to risk attack. But then the zebra gets this idea that this is not maybe not where we're supposed to be, that maybe we're supposed to be out there in the wild. So all these animals escape, and they have a really difficult time in the wild because they're not used to being in the wild. They're used to being cared for and coddled and taken care of. And I heard this pastor say, the church is so much like a zoo. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That that hell has gates, that the church shouldn't have gates, that the church should be a, a force that's going into hell and seizing people out of it. Do you see the difference? And this is really, really scary for us because what if I'm not good enough or what if I don't know enough scripture or what if I'm not smart enough or what if they say no, but we don't have to be afraid because Jesus gave us this mission. And before he gave us this mission, something else happened. This this same Jesus, the same man who came to earth as a baby, the the same Jesus who lived a perfect life as an example for us to follow, the, the same Jesus who died a painful death on the cross, the death that we deserve, and then overcame death by being raised from the dead, 
Before he ascended into heaven, this is what he told his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power. The same power that Jesus was led by his entire life. The same Holy Spirit that descended on him at his baptism, the same Spirit that led him into the wilderness to be tempted, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus depended on as he walked the earth is available to you and me when we make Jesus the Lord of our life. And that Jesus, the the one who overcame death, that means he has defeated darkness, that he has all things under his feet. He has conquered fear. He has been given authority over all things. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And when we are sent out with that power, with that Holy Spirit power, our mission cannot fail. Let's pray together. God, I'm resting in that promise today that you have given us this mission, but you have given us everything we need to accomplish it, that we don't need to be afraid because you have given us your power, all of it. We have access to the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are in Christ, the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus is leading us. So Lord, help us to overcome our fear. Help us to overcome our doubt about what happens when we go out and make disciples as you've called us to. Help help us overcome the fear of being sent out because we can get so comfortable in a place like this and we can get so um, excited even to come to church every Sunday and to see our friends and then to go home and get on with our lives that, Lord, we can forget that the life that you gave us, the life that you called us to was a life of being sent out to reach others for you. Help us to remember that this week. Help us to not live in fear, to not be afraid, to remember that you have overcome all things. And because of that, we can have great confidence that what you tell us to do will not fail. We pray these things in Jesus' name.